Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm Stephen Mayne, a contributor to Eureka and the founder of Crikey.com and a shareholder advocate. And we are... And, oh, we are the Money Cafe. We are the Money Cafe indeed, Alan. And I was going to say, a council in the city of Manningham. You left that out, Stephen. Come on. Yes, yes. Well, I joke I'm a PPPPPP, a poorly paid part-time pissant politician, but... Uh, you keep on insisting on saying that, so I'm going to have to say that. What do I say? Well, there you go. Um, now, uh, uh, we're in the middle of the tennis. Let's just talk about a bit of the tennis for a start. And since this is a money cafe, we need to talk about tennis money. Yes, well, I'm actually quite amazed that uh, Tennis Australia's financial position is so poor, so parlous. Like, they went in two years ago, they had 80 million in reserves. They were the most cashed up sporting body in the country. And with one open last year, they blew through their entire 80 million in reserves and had to get bailed out with a $40 million loan from the Victorian government. So I think it's reckless. They have So set, why did they spend all that money last year? Because they decided to run the event as opposed to cancelling like the Grand Prix, run the event without um, spectators. And with all the PPE and hotel quarantine, they had to pay the players all this extra money. And so, so it was a $120 million hit just to put on a two-week tournament with no fans. And it's all underwritten by the taxpayer, unlike the other three slams, which were all run at private well, presumably, clubs. Presumably they did it in order to, uh, have, to keep faith with their broadcast sponsor, right? Well, maybe so. But I, if you look at the, the but AFLs... I'm just wondering whether they were required to do it. I mean, did they have to do it or no, uh, under their contract with Channel 9? Well, I think, I think it's probably more the obligation to the players that they felt they, they wanted to. And, and the Victorian government didn't want to be known as the cancel capital. They were already cancelling the Grand Prix. Um, so I think that the, the two biggest players, the, the Tennis Australia and the Victorian government, got together and said, let's wear the cost of this, even though it's, 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 it's huge and we'll bail you out, Tennis Australia, and here's a $40 million loan. So where are they going to be after this open? Where well, are they going to make it back or what? Well, no, because they've only got 50% ticket capacity and they've stupidly decided to set a world record for prize money. They're paying out $75 million, which is more than any other slam. Why, why would you increase the prize money to an overall record when you're basically being bailed out by the state government? So the state government has decided to do that. And I think it's, uh, I think it's really interesting to contrast that with the AFL where they made a $23 million profit after the first COVID season because they got $37 million of JobKeeper. And Cricket Australia, which has still got a beautiful investment portfolio because Seven and Foxtel have continued to make their quarterly payments. So tennis as a sport has suffered a far bigger financial hit than the other major codes. And it'll be interesting to see where they sit this year when they're basically in the hands of the Victorian government at the moment. And do you think that the deporting of Jovac Nokovic has caused them a financial hit or not? Oh, I think there'll probably be some legal costs. Um, I think this tournament's still gone on. The ratings will still be good, all that sort of stuff. And if Barty wins, which I hope she does, it'll be great. I just hope that Nadal doesn't win because I think it'll be a bit hollow to, to, to secure his 21st with the Joker not here on in those circumstances. So I, I hope that Tsitsipas takes the men's out so we don't get Djokovic saying, oh, I would have been 21, but, you know, Rafa took it off me unfairly because of those sticklers in, uh, in Dutton's department. <laughs> but it's good we're getting some younger players. This um, uh, this guy from Canada who played last night, what's his name? Felix Auger. Can't uh, say it, but fantastic it. match, wasn't it? So, Great. Uh, I mean, Medvedev, I, hope, I just don't want to give Putin any any um, propaganda victories, so I really don't want Medvedev to win. Um, no. So, uh, but no, it was a cracking match, and uh, it'd be great to see Dylan Olcott go out on a high. 
I just don't want to see Kyrgios win anything, though. He's just the trump of tennis. He's such a toxic individual that uh, I hope oh, someone else wins the doubles, not, uh, not Kyrgios. That's a bit harsh, Stephen. Oh, well, all aboard, you know, Barty. That'd be fantastic. Um, okay, moving r- right along. BHP's now had uh, court approval for its re- reunification, right? So it's, it's not going to be a dual-listed company anymore. That's happening. It's, it's now approved. Uh, what does it mean? Well, it basically means that, that a $12 billion shorting play will now get taken out over the weekend because uh, tomorrow in the UK is the last day that the PLC shares trade. And from Monday, they're all just limited shares. So the, 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 the world record short or the Australian record short will disappear because all the PLC stocks will close Just explain out what short. a short is for those who don't well, know. Well, people have short sold BHP limited shares because they trade at a uh, premium and they've bought BHP PLC shares because they trade at a discount. So it's an easy arbitrage because your PLC shares on Monday will convert to limited shares so you can repay all those shares that you have borrowed to short. So 9% of BHP limited shares were shorted, which was the biggest ever short position in Australian history because the stock was trading at a 20%. Shorting means that you borrow some shares from somebody else and you sell them yeah. as if they're yours. Yeah. With and you the pay idea rent. Of, uh, uh, with the idea of paying them back later. When yeah, you, and you buy them back. you buy them back at a lower price. cheaper and return the borrowed shares. And you pay rent for the borrowed shares. So it's been a huge short play because uh, of the arbitrage where the PLC shares ch- trade at a discount but will be converting on a one-to-one basis. And the other big thing is the index change. So BHP goes from 6.5% of the ASX 200 to almost 11% over the weekend. So there's a massive push on for index investors to, to buy, you know, collectively, what is it, $20, $30 billion worth of BHP shares. Um, and so when you read the Weekend Australian, maybe not on Saturday, but maybe the following Saturday, BHP will appear as the number one stock in their list of the top 150 by market cap. I've never understood why for 20 years they've just pretended that the 42% of the stock in the, in the UK doesn't exist. It always has existed. It's just not included in our index. But BHP will be a $240 billion company, and I'm predicting they're going to do the biggest ever off-market buyback in Australian history in the first three months of this year after the results come out in February because they've got $22 billion of franking credits. And the most efficient way to get that to the people who like it is to do one of those off-market buybacks at a discount where the low-tax shareholders pile in, like the $30 billion of applications for the Commonwealth Bank's off-market buyback last year, and they got fully satisfied for the $6 billion. I'm predicting BHP might even do a $10 billion off-market buyback to distribute those franking credits, which is the reason that the premium existed in the first place, is that there's no value in franking credits in the UK, hence yes. the discount. And so uh, presumably BHP shares will go up if they uh, go from 6% to 11% of the din. Co- correct. So they've been, they've been, there's been a lag on the price in the last few months because it's, it's just a gift of tens, you know, it's a $10 billion plus gift to the PLC shareholders because they're getting to convert at the premium price. So it's the latest insult from the worst takeover, the worst merger deal ever where Billiton got 42% of the shares delivering what ended up being about 10% of the value. So it's the final insult from that, but it's good that it's been cleaned up. Which I once called an act of terrorism. And, it, and I agree with you. It's one of your greatest columns when you, <laughs> when you said that. And because um, 
dual-listed companies are disappearing. I mean, Brambles got rid of it 15 years ago. Shell and Unilever, the, the Dutch-British DLCs, they're both unwinding. So it's only really Rio Tinto, which is the last one left. So, so they should unscramble it, it too. But would it be too late to buy BHP shares tomorrow uh, in the in anticipation of the shares going up? No, look, it's all priced in because the, the share vote it was approved by 96% last week. So look, the stock's at 46 um, oh, look, I think it'll go up in time because it, it'll probably be north of 50 in a few weeks because they will start doing things with the ranking credits and people will realise the value of getting in on the franking credits. But it has... I mean, the, the tragedy here is that BHP shares would be probably over $100 if they'd never gone near Billiton. So Don Argus and Paul Anderson, you know, if only they'd never met Brian Gilbertson, Australia would be 30 to $40 billion better off as a national wealth situation and BHP shares wouldn't be lagging at 46. They'd be... Close to 100. There you go, folks. That's an interesting statement. Um, so uh, what else has been going on, Stephen? Um, we've got markets getting worried about not only interest rates going up, but also Ukraine. Now, um, uh, I reckon um, both of those stories are a bit of a beat-up, really. The interest rates probably are going up, but it isn't going to. It's just a correction. It's yeah. not like it's not a... Big bear market, and in fact, most of the corrections probably happened already. I think that's right. It's already priced in. Powell statements overnight, statement of the obvious. Of course, interest rates should start going up with inflation breaking out around the world. Of course, we should be stopping printing money. Should have stopped after the GFC, but for some reason they've just kept on going like crazy. And, and it seems to me Putin would be insane to, I mean, to invade Ukraine. Really? I mean, we're we talking seriously talking about. Russia invading Ukraine? Well, I mean, they invaded Crimea, so why wouldn't he? I mean, he's got 100,000 troops at the border. He's basically saying, marry me or I'll kill you to Ukraine. Ukraine Ukraine is the size of France. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to... But they need so yes, a couple of hundred, maybe a hundred thousand troops are massing on the border. Yeah, they well, need half a million troops. Well, there's 43 million Ukrainians, and eight million of them are sort of pro-Russian or speak Russian. So, you're right; it's a big bite for a hundred thousand troops. All these Russian soldiers are going to get killed. I mean, it'd just be a, it'd be an absolute disaster. And I mean, what are they? What are they going to? What happens then after they go in and they kind of m- m- go into Kiev and say, "Okay, we're in charge now." Then what happens? Well, like, mean, like in Crimea, it became a, a satellite state. I mean, Putin Crimea is in, Crimea is a little peninsula. Yeah, I, I mean, know. and they annexed it, and everyone said, but they probably oh, okay. won't take all of." Everyone said, "Okay, you can have it." No one's going to say you can have. Well, Ukraine. they won't take all of of Ukraine. They'll just take a slice of it. Just okay, an, so an they might take they yeah. might take the Donbass region, which yeah. which what used to be yeah. part of Russia, just and like the, the Chinese are just taking all Russian people. The Chinese and most are of those people that you talk about, they live in that area. So okay, they might take that. Well. But, but the thing is, even if they did that, it will be so expensive because of the sanctions. Yeah. They'll well, cut these terribly we, expensive sanctions. Yeah, we, we need the West to be united. I think Putin's taking advantage of, you know, UK in crisis, COVID, Merkel's gone. She was the leader of the free world during Trump. Biden's looking dodgery, totally stuffed up the Afghanistan withdrawal. So, you know, Putin's just the, the, the boyfriend is a disaster you just don't other, want to be associated with, but he's taking advantage of the, other the thing chaos is, in the West. He hasn't done anything yet. He's he's, done, he hasn't done anything. He's well, put a few he, more he, troops on the he border. Annexed, he annexed That was 2014. Crimea, that was seven the, years and ago. The, and the CCP have taken Hong Kong. So the world is worried about Russia and China right now. And I think I'm surprised markets aren't more worried. And the governance problem that would fix all this is fixed terms for leaders. Only we had fixed terms for leaders, we wouldn't have mad Putin and we wouldn't have now that is President Z oh, causing see. this chaos. Because these long-term dictators get worse and worse with time. 
So you yeah, need yeah, a way they, to get but, rid of them. Yeah, but they used to have fixed term for leaders and they cancelled them. Yeah, but look what's happened. We've got the worst one ever in China now. And um, you, you know the biggest mistake the West made was they didn't nurture Russian democracy. They instead just tried to pick off the former satellites to create and you know, encircle Russia. If they'd just gone in and nurtured Russian democracy when the wall came down, imagine if we had Russia in helping deal with China now. You know, part of the, what's that called, the quad, encircling China. Instead, we've got these two, one former power, one emerging power, acting madly at the moment, and it's really quite destabilising. I think it's, the markets are surprisingly relaxed about what's going on. Well, there you are, folks. Stephen's worried. He's, he's worried. Yes. Um, uh, what else is going on? Have you got... Um, uh, you've, hey, look, we've got an uh, election coming up, and uh, when are we going to find out about the donations to political parties? Because we, we do find out before the election, don't we? Yeah, well, look, I'm a bit of a governance junkie, so what, the worst element of Australian governance is the, is the pathetic, incomplete and delayed disclosure of who funds our political parties. So on February the 1st every year we get this big dump Every state, territory, the feds, all in one moment at 9 o'clock on Tuesday morning next week, you get this big dump of donations, which is hard to interpret. It's only about 60% complete. Because and where is it dumped? Where is it the, dumped? The AEC, the Electoral Commission, just dumps it on their website. But it, it's anything which is under um, uh, $12,000 is not disclosed. So you get a whole bunch of donors who donate 11800 to avoid transparency. The figures are already um, out of date because it's June 30 last year and we get no balance sheets from our parties. I mean, I used to be president of a kindergarten and we used to have to tell the state government our balance sheet every year. Political parties are the only institutions I'm aware of that don't have to even reveal their balance sheets to their members. I mean, it's just, it's just a joke. So the thing I'm most interested in is who's obviously giving money leading into the election, but also few people realise that both the Labor and Liberal Party each have share portfolios of more than $70 million, both of which go back to when they used to own radio stations. So the Queensland Labor Party sold their radio station in 1986 for about $16 million. The Liberals in Victoria sold 3XY for about the same figure at about the same time. And they've both invested in the share market. And now the Liberal Party in Victoria, through the Cormac Foundation, has $30 million worth of Commonwealth Bank shares and a portfolio of close to $100 million. So when we get the donations data on Tuesday, we'll get all the dividend payments and we'll be able to reverse engineer their So they their counted portfolio. as donations? Well, they, it's an associated entity that gives the Liberals four or five million a year. John Howard's on the board. And at least the Liberals, give them their credit, reveal the dividend payments. Whereas the Labor Party, they've got, for instance, 20 million bucks worth of Suncorp shares. And I've looked at the CSL share, which is they have $11 million worth of CSL shares, which is their best ever investment. They just reveal that Morgan's, the Brisbane broker that manages their portfolio, gave them $4 million or whatever the figure is in dividends. So, that, so here's Albo saying, I'm going to be Mr Federal ICAC, Mr Transparency. He refuses to reveal what shares the Labor Party owns in Queensland, even though it's their largest single donor, is the three, four, five million a year they get from so their share So what reason portfolio. could they have for refusing to reveal that? What's the, what's, that what's the kind of, what's the embarrassment about? I, I don't know. I don't want the world to know that they've got this really big uh, share portfolio maybe they called, co- called maybe, Labor Holdings. Maybe they own shares in coal miners. Well, they, they probably do. They've probably got all sorts of dodgy shares in there, but all you know is Morgan's gives them four million a year. So I'm going to you know, put some pressure on to get a promise of transparency out of them. It's like some federal Labor discloses every donation under 1500 because that's their policy. 
but dodgy New South Wales Labor is still sticking with the $12,000 figure. So even voluntary disclosure practices are quite inconsistent. Looking forward to seeing how much the gambling industry, how much the coal miners have, have, disclosed, have donated next year. And obviously it's still old information and many of the big dollars haven't arrived yet because they'll be arriving you know, during the campaign and we won't be told about that until February the 1st next year, whereas we really should have real-time disclosure every time a big cheque gets should, written and goes should. up on the website. Absolutely should. Like an ASX announcement. The Liberal Party says, we've just got 50000 from Coles, just letting you know. But it's just hopeless. So the Liberals in particular are hopeless at transparency. Well, that's because uh, the, the recipients, the people who are, have an interest in keeping it quiet, are uh, in charge of uh, making the laws, yeah, making the rules. That's right, massive conflict of interest. And, and the Liberals do have a point that uh, the, the unions go around and people get picked on if they're big Liberal Party donors. And they all get the same, like the Labor Party successfully gets, you know, 100,000 a year out of the ANZ because they're equal opportunity donors. The unions are not equal opportunity donors. The CFMEU doesn't go, oh, we'll give the Liberals a million as well, just to be fair. So the Liberals claim quite fairly to a degree that transparency of their donors just leads to standover tactics and pressure for the corporates to match the Labor Party, whereas the Liberals can never get an equal whack out of the, out of the unions. Okay, that's a fair point. Shall we move to questions? Yes, How are we let's going do that. Now, we've only got three questions this week. Come on, folks. You can do better than that. Send them in. Lift. Uh, first question is from Steph. Love the podcast. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. Welcome, Steph. Thanks for emailing us. Is it possible to get AGM minute, meeting minutes if you're not currently an investor? I'm looking to invest in some companies, but I would like to get some knowledge of what management are doing to mitigate any emissions caused by, by their activities. And I thought I could find that in their meeting minutes. Any help would be appreciated. I'm not sure she could find it in their meeting minutes, could she, well, Stephen? Well, I mean, there's a few things there. Firstly, the, the AGM meeting minutes uh, are the most useless thing of all time because the AGM is a public event and the, the formal addresses are lodged with the ASX. You, you can listen to the debate and, and the, the minutes won't give a proper summary of the debate and the, the, the votes are disclosed, disclosed to the ASX. I think you might be talking about board minutes and you never get to see them unless you sue a company and get the board minutes in discovery. So we'd all love to see the board minutes. We'd get a whole bunch of scoops, Alan, if we suddenly had access to BHP's board minutes. So sadly, you can't get the any minutes that are of any value except for the anodyne useless AGM minutes. But companies are increasingly releasing things like sustainability reports or climate change reports. So if you are interested in emission mitigation, just Google, you'll see Santos has just re released their first ever climate change report. Uh, Rio Tinto did a 35-page climate change report for the first time in 2020. So more and more companies are actually doing it. Yes, you can argue it's marketing guff, and you might want to look at third parties for their analysis as to whether they're decent on emissions or not. But, but yeah. to the extent that the companies have data in them in their thing about what their emissions yeah. are and what they're doing... It's getting it, much, it's, it's much useful. better. I mean, they are glossy marketing documents mm. to show how terrific they are, but look, you just need to wade through that and see yeah. what the data but shows. Look, one of the best initiatives we've seen with the climate activists at recent AGMs is they, they deluge companies with shareholder resolutions calling for transparency on how they're going to reduce their emissions. And the compromise settlement is often, we'll withdraw the resolution... Uh, because we will agree to produce a climate report next year. So a number of companies have come to the table by agreeing to more transparency on climate targets in exchange for um, hostile shareholder resolutions demanding more transparency being withdrawn. And that's been a good example of democracy and activism producing more transparency, which is a good thing. 
Now, question two, Alan, is from Ian. Morning, cafe. What will happen to all the internal combustion engine vehicles in the near future? If you've looked at an internal combustion engine to EV conversion, you'd know that it is an extremely niche industry and a twenty dollars to $50,000 proposition. There may only be a handful of companies doing it in Australia. Could EV conversion become a growth industry with government support, or will we just dump all the old clunkers in the outback to rust? I don't think there's too many cars that would be worth spending $50,000 to convert to an EV, would there? I mean, you might as well just go and buy an EV. Yes, um, well, I... So, uh, look, I'm not sure it's going to be a growth industry, to be honest. I can't it's, it's really very see it. So, look, I did email your question, Ian, to a friend of mine called David Wynn, who runs the ev101.com.au website, which is a dedicated EV website focused on Australian consumers, and he reckons it'll only be viable for classic cars that it's, uh, it's just too expensive and given that you can buy a second-hand Leaf now for under 20000 and Nissan Leaf and that new EVs are going to be under 30000 within the next three years, just wait for that and don't worry about conversion. But the clunkers are still going to be used for, for 15 or 20 years in Australia because EV sales were only 2% of national sales yeah, so last it'll be a, it'll year, be even a very having gra- doubled. gradual process, although there might be a bit of a tipping point when you know, at, at some point people realise that their internal combustion cars are not going to be worth anything. But I've been so, waiting. I mean, I'm trying to buy a car for my daughters. We've got four drivers and two cars in our house. And because of COVID and supply chain issues, the second-hand clunkers market, has, the price has gone up by 30 to 40%. Right. Since COVID struck, so I've been renting, borrowing, renting to avoid paying, you know, $10,000 for a car that might be worthless in four, four years once the EV price impact seriously comes. So it's just totally counterintuitive that clunkers have soared in value in the last two years, but that's what's actually happened. Yeah, well, I can't see that continuing, though. No. But, really. you know, try buying a second-hand clunker right now. It's very expensive. But it is an interesting question. It's what's going to happen to them all. I mean, they'll have to be they'll, – they'll be wrecked. Yeah, they'll it'll to... be recycled as Sims Metal or recycle, and there'll be um, parts, you know, yeah. like, like anything else that gets to the end of its life. Hugh says – this is a question for you, Stephen. He says, hi, Stephen. I was wondering if you could answer something for me about the upcoming Sydney Airport Scheme meeting. On page 24, FAQ question, what voting majority is required to approve the schemes? It has two requirements for the company scheme resolution, with one being present and voting. My question is, is it more beneficial for my vote if I log into the virtual and vote live rather than cast my vote beforehand using the chairman? I'm confused why there are two requirements for this resolution. So the two requirements, Ian, is the 75% of voted stock which is the only one that really matters, and that's where all the instos turn out to vote, and you'll typically get 80% of the issued capital will be voted in any scheme vote, and as long as 75% of that is in favour, it gets through, and they usually always go through with like 98%. Uh, The only close ones over the years were uh, MIM only just squeaked over when Extrata bought that in 2003, and APN News and Media's scheme was voted down at six bucks a pop just before the, uh, the GFC, but... 99% 99% of schemes achieve the 75% because it's all agreed. The board's saying yes, everyone's saying yes. So you need some large motivated shareholder to stop it. And there's an interesting an interesting example of that with tomorrow's S, or Osnet uh, scheme vote where the Chinese government, which owns 20% through state grid, is refusing to say anything. So everyone is saying vote for, vote for, but the CCP up there in Beijing, they're being Delphic and opaque as usual. 
And uh, so we'll turn up at the meeting tomorrow and see what they do. I've emailed the text of the chairman this morning saying, please disclose the proxies because there's market uncertainty. We don't know if this deal is going to go through. The second metric, Ian, also Hugh, is the uh, 50% of the shareholders who turn out have to vote in favour. So that's basically a SOP to retail shareholders. So in that situation, me with my three shares, tallest and smallest shareholder, has the same voting power as BlackRock, Vanguard and Australian Super because it's it's a number of shareholders metric. Sounds like us retail have got huge power with that, but no scheme has ever been voted down on the retail shareholder metric. So it's a nice to have, which means that retail can't get ripped off, but no one's ever run a decent campaign to use what basically would be a gerrymander, which is enlarged voting power of small retail shareholders to vote down a scheme. And I'm looking forward to that day happening, but sadly the retail turnout's only about 5% at an AGM and, you know, you're lucky if 10% bother to vote on a scheme takeover. So it all comes down to the institutions. But it's nice to have that second metric out there. So what about Hugh's question of whether it matters whether he logs in to vote himself or does he cast a vote beforehand using the chairman? Does it matter? Look, as long as you vote. So I would suggest you vote early. The thing you should never do is to vote an undirected proxy to the chairman because that's just giving the chairman votes in his back pocket. If you don't know how to vote appoint the Australian Shareholders Association as your proxy and they'll make an informed vote based on the determination of their 100 or so volunteer company monitors, which collectively vote about 4 to $5 billion worth of undirected proxies each year. So be informed and direct your vote as early as possible. At the meeting's fine as well, but it often feels like a dead vote. But um, just don't give it to the chair, you know. And, um, and speaking of other votes, I mean, that vote next week will be interesting with Sydney Airport because it's, it's going to deliver 20 billion of cash, 20 plus 23 billion of cash into the hands of investors. And I reckon that's much of that's just going to disappear into BHP shares because the index funds have got to go from, they've got to increase their BHP holding by basically 70%. So I think the big cash switch next week is thank you for the cash for Sydney Airport. And we better put all that into BHP because we're significantly underweight courtesy of those 42% of those PLC that shares coming be, into the ASX market. That must surely push BHP's price up at that time. 20 billion bucks is a buy. Yeah, because and, and all the shorters will be taken out. Yeah. So, so um, but, you know, all those... You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, BHP, I, I do agree BHP is probably, probably a buy. So uh, There you are. And the last point I was going to make, Alan, was the CSL uh, SPP, which closes on February the 7th. It's currently underwater. So the offer's at 272 and the stock's at 258. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't participate because they have what's called the VWAP alternative pricing, where it'll be priced at a 2% discount to the volume weighted average price in the lead up to the close. So I always like it when retail pays less than instos in a capital raising. And this looks like it'll be one such example where the Instos shelled out $6.3 billion at $272. And us retail investors will probably put 500 to a billion in at hopefully 255 or something in a nice chunky discount to what the Instos paid when the market was a bit toppier a few weeks ago. There you go. This is, this is news you can use, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Which was Bob Gottliebson's great <laughs> slogan for BRW. <laughs> Absolutely right. Well, thanks, uh, thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of the Money Cafe. Um, James Thompson will be back next week, uh, so send in your questions for him or me, and we'll answer them next week at the Money Cafe at EurekaReport.com.au. Uh, thanks very much, Stephen, for joining us in the cafe. Thanks, Alan. It's always, always a pleasure to do this. Lots of fun. 
And uh, until See next week, therefore, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm Stephen Mayne, a proud Eureka Report contributor. And also, all sorts of other stuff. Lots of other stuff, but uh, all that matters is Eureka. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Stephen. See you in a fortnight.